Welcome back. This is episode two of the Dear Baseball Gods podcast. I'm Dan Blewett, and today we're going to talk about making teams, what it's like getting started in independent baseball, um, and just the difficulty in general of continuing a professional baseball career. So if you don't know my background, I was a lifetime independent player. That was something that was a, a chip on my shoulder uh, throughout my playing days, and honestly, it's something that I'll continue to kind of carry with me because a lot of people just don't understand what independent baseball is. So the way my college career wrapped up, I got Tommy John surgery in my redshirt junior year. So for those of you not familiar with the redshirt process, that is when you know you have a medical hardship, you tweak your knee, you hurt your shoulder, you hurt your elbow, whatever body part it might be. If you hurt it early enough in the season or you just play few enough games, they'll allow you to keep that year of eligibility so you didn't burn it up because you were injured. So my third year in college, my, my true junior year, I got a, a medical red shirt because um, I had a partial UCL tear in my elbow. All right, so they gave me another year, so that meant I would come back potentially for five seasons in college, um, obviously beyond the normal four. So my red shirt junior year, which was my fourth year, I ended up blowing my elbow out in the conference tournament and that was the last pitch I'd throw in my in my collegiate career. So I came back for a fifth season um, just to rehab with college because it's, as I learned later on, doing my second one a couple years later, it's, it's very tough to complete quality rehab when you're not under supervision and you don't have a good set routine. So I knew that going back to college would give me access to all the resources of our training staff, I'd still be able to practice with the team. You know, I'd be in college doing, you know, taking my classes, which that was not a positive, that was not a bonus for me, but um, it would it would give me a, a routine, resources, people to help me, a big support system with which to, to finish my rehab. So I did that, didn't throw a pitch my, my senior year, um, except for kind of honestly a, uh, a little bit of a heartbreaking uh ceremonial first pitch on one of the last weekends of the season which I really appreciated my coach organized that he knew how hard I I was trying to get back and and pitch a little bit at the end of that fifth year for me but um it ended up not being in the cards and uh, I think it was senior weekend at home he uh, organized it so that I could throw out the first pitch which um was pretty difficult but again um it was something that I appreciate at the time but that was my last my last uh collegiate pitch so once I graduated, I was just kind of set adrift, and I tried to, to get back that summer. You know, my surgery that back then in 2008 was in August, so 12 months was going to be at the end of August, which is pretty much at the end of the professional baseball uh, calendar. So when I was trying to get back, you know, looking back on it, it was very unrealistic for me to think I could. I know at, at, at times, you know, some of the big league guys and some of the minor league guys get back at the, like, the 11-month mark, but it's pretty unrealistic. You know, and as we went to the ASMI uh, Baseball Injuries Conference last year, you know, Stan Conti from the Dodgers had a couple great talks on Tommy John rehab, kind of explaining that the, the median was more like 14 months to 16 months um, rather than like this 12-month mark that we had kind of established. And he said, he said, doesn't it seem arbitrary that 12 months, you know, one complete calendar year is the, is the golden, you know, the benchmark for this? He's like, that just seems too convenient. You know, why would it be 12 months? Like, why are all these things end up falling in this, these big round numbers? You know, why is 100 miles an hour, uh, you know, the cap on pitcher velocity? You know, and guys are starting to push past that now, whereas in previous years, 
100 seemed like an impossibility. And this was the same with Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile, you know, years ago. Um, no one thought that could be done. As soon as one guy did it, you know, dozens more did it in the coming years. So anyway, um, I was not able to come back in 2009. And so when you go through the when you go through that process where you're undrafted, you finish your collegiate career injured, um, you have no value to anyone, right? I had value. I knew I could pitch in professional baseball, and really you have to end up just going in the back door, which uh, is independent baseball for a lot of people. So. If you're not familiar, there's there's kind of tiers, just like anything else. So there's a couple leagues that, to be honest, I just think are illegitimate. They're not really professional baseball, but you know they still pay their guys 300 bucks a month or whatever. Um, those are like the Pecos League, and uh, there's another one out out west called the Pacific Association, which was one of one of the teams was subject um, to a book called uh, "The Only Rule Is It Has to Work." But you know those leagues. You know, and that's just my personal opinion. I don't think if you just write someone a meager, tiny little paycheck that that makes it professional baseball. But anyway, um, the the established leagues that have a fan base, that have legitimate ballparks, that have more legitimate paychecks, and agree, understand that's kind of relative, are the uh, the Frontier League. That's kind of the lowest rung, which they just cater more to, to rookie-age players. Um, it's a pretty well-organized league. Uh, the Frontier League is like more like the rookie ball level. Um, above that is the American Association and the uh, Can-Am League. Um, probably the Can-Am League being a little more unsteady at this point of uh, of its existence. And the American Association is a pretty good league. I think guys kind of refer to it as like a an A-ball, high-A equivalent. And then there's the Atlantic League, which is really a, a big step up above that, which most of the players in the Atlantic League have, you know, so if you have a a 25-man roster in that league. Probably eight of those guys have major league experience, you know, major league service time. Another eight have a pretty significant um, service time in AAA, and then usually the rest are all double-A guys. There's very few single-A guys. There's very few career independent guys like myself who end up getting a chance to play in the Atlantic League just because there's so much heavy turnover. Um, where when guys get released from big league rosters, they go to the Atlantic League. This is kind of how it works. So that's the premier league you want to play in if you're an independent baseball. And when scouts come and look for those guys, when they they need a you know a AAA starter, um, that's the that's the league they go to because they know the guys that are in that league have pitched at that level before, so they can say, okay, we need someone who can eat up innings in AAA, or we need a shortstop because both of our shortstops got hurt. Um, let's go grab one from the Atlantic League, and that's what they that's what they do. And you saw that with Scott Casimir making his return to Major League Baseball out of the Atlantic League. Um, you know, Dontrell Willis pitched in that league. Lou Ford still kicking with, uh, he was my teammate last year in Long Island. Incredibly impressive player. Um, and then, uh, obviously, there, there's the the story of Rich Hill, who was also a Long Island Duck the year before I was there. I was in that same league with Camden, and we kind of joked that we helped Rich Hill get back to the big leagues because he pitched against our squad. I think he uh, struck out 12 guys in five innings and was just utterly dominant. I mean, really, really just did not belong in that league, and you could tell. So anyway, that's kind of how independent baseball stacks up. But, you know, again, for guys like me who didn't get their chance, didn't get drafted, finished collegiate um, baseball with an injury, you have to go prove yourself in independent baseball. And if you do well and you establish that, A, you're healthy, B, you're doing well, um, and C, that you're of the caliber, you know, where you could fit in an A-ball team for, you know, a major league organization, then affiliated teams, again, affiliated with Major League Baseball, they will sign you, 
put you in their minor league system, and then, you know, there you are. You're climbing the mountain that you want to climb. So independent baseball, in a lot of ways, just kind of runs parallel with the minor leagues. And most of the guys in independent baseball have played in the minor leagues. The vast majority have, um, especially as you get in higher levels. Again, in the Atlantic League, I think I was one of only maybe a dozen guys, it seemed like, in that whole league of eight teams who didn't have any affiliated experience. You know, and there's some other very impressive players. This guy, Travis Scott, uh, plays for the Sugarland Skeeters. He's been their starting catcher for a number of years there. He's a, a really good player. Um, I had a teammate, Michael Click, you know, throws in the mid-90s, has had a very successful successful career, just hasn't gotten a chance either. Um, but anyway, so independent baseball is kind of the, you know, it's kind of, it runs parallel. It's kind of the back door if you've been injured or you just got overlooked, you played at a smaller school, or you just weren't, weren't good enough and you're still kind of growing into your ability. I mean, those things happen. But again, you know, and, and the caveat to all that is is the uh, independent baseball in a lot of ways is accurate. There's a lot of guys in there who are who are really good college players who just weren't good enough to be drafted, and they're not good enough to get signed out of independent baseball either. Um, obviously, I ended up being one of those guys, but you know, I have my own opinions about my own ability. Obviously, so back to my story. When I graduated. I, I had to find a way in. I didn't know how to get into independent baseball out in, in Baltimore, you know, where I grew up and where I played in college. There's There aren't any independent leagues that close. There's one team, the uh, Washington Wild Things, throughout in uh, Washington, Pennsylvania, which is up in the mountains. It's about four and a half hours from my house. So so none of the, uh, none of the leagues or teams or coaches um, really had strong connections to, like, the Baltimore area. And when you get out here in the Midwest, you know, I live here in, in Bloomington Normal now. If you're in this town you know, Brooks Carey, the manager for the Corn Belters, he knows about a lot of local players. So he's aware because they need to take some of those college guys, especially when the season gets going and all the uh, the guys with prior pro experience that they, you know, took before the season, when they start not panning out, when they start pitching poorly, they look for replacements and there's not always guys with pro experience readily available. You know, usually the best players already have a job somewhere, especially in the Atlantic League. Um but so out here in, in the Midwest, you know, if you played Illinois State or you know, University of Illinois or any of these local schools, um, there's an independent team within a couple hours of you probably where chances are that coach knows your coach or some coach or there's there's some little web that's weaved um, to get back to you where you say, hey, I, I really like to try to play independent baseball. Does anyone I know know a coach where I can maybe go get a tryout and throw for him, you know? Obviously, with uh, I played in Evansville, Indiana in 2012, and the manager there, Andy McCauley, great guy. He loves giving college guys a chance, and he has a very close relationship with uh, USI and Evansville down there. And he has he holds tryouts, and if for nothing else, just to keep a rapport with the town and to keep a tab on those guys and um, to keep that relationship going, because he's you know I had a couple teammates from USI, University of Southern Indiana, who are good players. It's a Division II school. I think they're a perennial winner in Division II. And, um, you know, so he keeps those, uh, you know, that relationship strong because when he needs a pitcher in a pinch or, a, you know, a position player, when the coach at one of those local schools know that, you know, Andy will treat those guys with respect, give them a chance and whatever, you know, they're happy to help him out when he's in a bind. So, but anyway, back in, you know, on the East Coast, we didn't really, I didn't really have that connection. Our coaches, just, there's not teams out there and, um, the one, the teams that there are out there are, are higher level. So I had no shot of jumping on with like the Southern Maryland Blue Crabs, 
or the Camden River Sharks back when they existed, or any of those Atlantic League teams, because that's kind of just like going from college right to the big leagues in a, in a lot of senses. So um, the only teams that were local to me were just way above my pay grade. You know, I needed to get started at the bottom and work my way up. So the question was at that point is, is how do I do this? You know, how do I, I don't, I didn't really want to go through the Frontier League draft, which I might have made a team out of there, who knows, but it's pretty difficult because 350 guys show up to the Frontier League draft or trial camp draft, whatever you call it, every May. And, you know, teams get like, I think it's up to five draft picks. I could be wrong, but it ends up being they pick the guys that just hit the most bombs or show the fastest. You know, it's a lot of raw tools and it's tough, you know, with that many bodies, it's the only way a coach is going to be able to grade guys out is just, wow, he really impressed me with his power. Let's give him a chance in spring training. Or, you know, they definitely draft the the top 15, you know, hardest throwers, guys with the nastiest sliders, whatever it is. So it's if you don't have premium velocity or a premium out pitch or premium speed, premium power, something like that, it's really hard to get noticed at those tryout camps. So flashback to 2009 slash 10, when I was finishing my rehab, yeah, I was a 90-mile-per-hour guy. but And at the time, you know, 90 to 92 was above average. You know, it's a little bit – it's about average now because velocity's been getting – you know, been climbing up um, in, the last, in the last five, ten years. But anyway, it, my prospects of, of getting noticed in that draft would have been, I think, a lot more slim. So my path ended up being circuitous uh, at best. So – I played collegiate summer baseball for a guy named John Duffy. He uh, was a Richmond Spider in college. And then after his career at Richmond, he played a year at the Red Sox. And then he was in independent baseball. So he played, I think, seven or eight more seasons in indie ball. And he had time in Fargo and a lot of these other now defunct leagues. Uh, well, Fargo's not in a defunct league now. They're in the American Association, and they're a great organization as well. Um, but he, anyway, he bounced around for a long time in independent, independent baseball. So I said, Hey Duff, I want to keep playing. Like, you know me, um, how do I do this? Like, how do I get going? How do I get back into baseball now that I'm recovered from, from Tommy John? He said, okay, well, you know, as luck turns out, or, uh, I have a, uh, former teammate named Josh Patton, who is going to be the hitting coach at this new franchise in the Frontier League called the Normal Corn Belters. I said, okay. He said, I'll call Josh for you, and I'll see what he can do. He can talk to the manager, a guy named Hal Lanier, and he'll see if he can get you uh, maybe into spring training. So I said, okay. So he did that. He called Josh. Josh put a bug into Hal's ear, and okay. All right. So he's got a name, whatever. Um, I was doing lessons and strength training so I wasn't really doing lessons. I really was just doing mostly strength training at this place called the Bat Academy in Baltimore. And so that was my sort of post-college job. I was the director of sports performance there. And the guy who owned it, Larry Williams, very well-connected. And he had a lot of, you know, well-connected instructors and a lot of pro guys and older guys. And one of those uh, pitching instructors was a guy named Rick Forney. Now, Rick Forney is still the manager of the Winnipeg Gold Eyes in the American Association. Also a very successful uh, organization up there. They get a great crowd. Um, I played against, I ended up playing against Rick a couple years later with the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks in 2011. Um, and so Rick was doing lessons there, and I asked, I kind of asked Larry, because Rick's kind of an intimidating guy. I said, hey, like, do you think do you think I could throw for, uh, for Rick? Do you think he would, like, listen to me if I asked him? 
you know, that I'm trying to get into indie ball. Do you think he would sign me? He said, I don't know, but, you know, just talk to him. So I talked to Rick, and he said, he was pretty clear. He said, you know, my league's not, um, it's not a rookie-level league. We do need a couple of rookies because of our, our league's rules. So in the American Association, they have to have a certain amount of rookies. I think it's four but they have to have them on the roster to have a, like a legal roster. And then they also have other rules that kind of govern how old players can be. So they can have a certain amount of LS, LS1 through 4s, a certain amount of LS5s, LS6s, and, and veterans. So LS means like league service. So if you have six years of, of pro baseball experience, whether it's with an affiliated team or with an independent team, that's what LS6 means. So, And if you're above that, so you played eight or nine years, you'd be a veteran, and a team can only have like four veterans, something like that. So they make those rules just to, just to force teams to still give rookies a chance because they need that feeder system. And that, in the end, is what independent baseball is for, is to give guys a chance who didn't otherwise get a chance and obviously to make money for, you know, the franchise owner. So, you know, this is independent baseball is in a lot of ways a tough, tough nut to crack because – they need to make money. They're not in it for developing, you know, uh, some 18-year-old kid into the next Bryce Harper. They're in it to win today so they can put fans in the stands so they can make money because they're just a viable business. They have one team. They have no feeders. So that's kind of how it goes. Whereas obviously with, you know, Major League Baseball, you know, the Cubs, they have all their minor league systems to develop the next generation of big leaguers. But, again, that's not how independent baseball works. So it's very cutthroat. It's in a lot of ways seems like um, Major League Baseball, the way guys get turned over. You know, if you sign a $100,000 signing bonus and you're a 10th round pick, uh, you know, the Major League Baseball draft, you're going to get a couple years with that team, right? They're going to try to see if their investment in you will pay off. So you can struggle here and there, and they're going to stick by you for a certain amount of time. Even if you get a million dollars or two, you're going to get, you know, three or four years. And at a certain point, when you're just not living up to their investment, they're going to cut ties with you, but you get time. That's kind of the point. So, but with independent ball, there's nothing invested in you. It's show up, be the guy we wanted you to be. And if you're not, we got other guys who are calling us daily to take your job and we'll start to listen when you're not pitching well or hitting well or whatever it is. So Rick kind of explained that, Hey, um, I don't sign rookies who are right-handed pitchers. You know, if I do sign rookie pitchers sometimes, but they're almost always lefties, um, because we just get a, we just get more guys trying to play for us up in Winnipeg because we win and we're in a higher league. So all the right-handers that I sign have experience. You know, they have a bigger baseball resume. So I'll look at you. You know, I'm happy to do it. And if I think you're good enough, I can make some calls because obviously I know a lot of guys in baseball. So yeah, sure. Um, you know, let's set a date and you can throw a bullpen for me and I'll see how you look. So I did that, and uh, when the day came. And this was this was really an odd experience because when I on the day that I came in to throw for Rick, I had a couple of things going on in my head. Number one, I had to throw hard, right? So I knew that, and I need to show at least I've got velocity. And my velocity had been kind of up and down at, at late, um, and I just wanted to make sure I was amped up and ready to go. So I took a bunch of coffee and a caffeine pill. Well, I guess I would say I drank a bunch of coffee. And I took a caffeine pill. So for me, I have a really high or low sensitivity to caffeine, um, which means I, you know, you give me a, a big cup of coffee and I chug it and it just doesn't do anything for me. I don't feel jittery. I don't feel awake. It takes a lot of it before I get going. So I want to make sure I was going when this bullpen was going to take place. So I took a 200 milligram caffeine pill, which 200 milligrams is about two, two cups of coffee. 
And I made a whole Nalgene, a quart-sized Nalgene full of cold brew. And I chugged that too. So by time by time the bullpen was ready to start, I was just like talking to everybody. And if you know me, I'm not a super talkative person, um, at least outside of my gym. I'm kind of reserved. And especially when I'm stressed or in a situation like that, I'm focused. Like I'm not going to say a word. Um, but I was just chatting people up. Hey, 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 how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? What are we going to do? All right, let's, let's pitch, 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 pitch. So I had a lot of caffeine in my blood. I was excited. And, uh, and so obviously for me being, you know, a diligent student of the game and student of my arm and student of rehab and trying not to be hurt again, when, uh, I showed up, I got there early and I just went through this long, rigorous warm up to do all my stretches and all my arm exercises and all these things to make sure that my elbow wasn't going to explode. Um, when I threw this bullpen, I thought that was a good thing to do. You know, something that, Hey, if a coach sees me, you know, being diligent and putting in all this work to have a really rigorous, great warm up. That's a, it's a positive. Well, after I throw my bullpen and I was 90 to 92 and I showed a decent curve ball and, you know, overall I looked good. Like I looked like a pro guy. Um, he said, Hey, you know, you look good. Like, you know, I think I want to see you throw one more time before I make calls, but you know, you got a good arm and you got some good stuff and I think you definitely got something. So I think we have some potential here. Um, he said, but all that warm up stuff that you do, you got to knock that shit off. I said, really? He said, yeah. So when I walked in, I saw you, you know, in the corner doing all those stretches and all those weird exercises and this and that. He said, I know you're doing that because you're off of an injury, but it makes a coach like me and coaches like us, we have front office people to, to, um, keep happy and they don't want insurance claims. They don't want workers comp claims because in pro baseball, workers comp is a thing and, we don't want someone who's going to be a workers' comp liability who's going to cost the team money. So we said, so when I see a guy like you doing all that stuff, it makes me think that you have to do that stuff to stay healthy. So if you have to do that stuff, I would suggest you finding a place away from the public eye where you can do it and no one sees you do it. Because what's going to make field coaches at ease if you throw for more guys in the future is that you can just grab a ball, get hot in a hurry, and have no ill effects from it. That to coaches shows that you're healthy rather than I have to go through 30 minutes of warm up just to, just to take the field. I said, do you understand? I said, yeah, I do. And I, it makes sense. And in a lot of ways, um, that is, that is indicative of health. You know, if you have to do all these things, if you have to take all these pills and make this incredible warm up just to pitch, like, are you healthy? You know, I don't know. And, and I, th- I know obviously with, you know, the change in sports performance now, you know, more and more people are like, oh, look at this great. This is the world's best baseball warm up. But as I learned, as I got older, especially after I came back from my second elbow surgery, it really kind of is. It's an indicator of health when you can warm up when you have to warm up. And as a reliever, you don't get any kind of chance to do all that crazy stuff. So I see a lot of these warm up, oh, the best pitchers warm up on YouTube and all this stuff. And I just scoff at it because like, Who's going to do that? Yeah, if you're a starting pitcher, you could do a lot of that stuff. That's fine. But the other question is, do you need it? And the third question is, if you're a reliever, can you even do it? And usually the answer is no. Because as I, w- I found out, being a reliever in my last three years, um, y- you just get the call. You know, sometimes I had to be ready in three and a half, four minutes, and I could do it, you know, two hitters worth. 
They said, hey, Dan, Dan's got the guy in the hole. Um, get him up. He's got to get going quick. And they'd have a mound visit. You know, then the next pitch guy would fly out. So now the hitter on deck is up. And that means the hitter on deck is mine. Um, you know, it's throw your jacket off and just start winging the baseball as quick as you can. And the adrenaline helps you get warm. And uh, that's just kind of how it is. You get thrown the fire a lot of times. So after he explained that to me, you know, I, I, I don't know what I did. I kind of took it to heart, but I kind of, you know, was still wary of, um, you know, dismissing my routine because, again, I just wanted to be healthy. I wanted to pitch. I, I've been spending a lot of my life sitting on the bench with elbow problems. I didn't want that anymore. So I didn't, I didn't want to give up on the things that were keeping me healthy. Um, but I also needed, no, I needed to impress a coach or else everything I was doing was going to be for naught, right? So, um, as it turned out, I went down to Florida with a barnstorming team called the Gilday Raiders and Bob Gilday, he's a, a Delaware guy. He's one of the most connected people I've ever met. He, uh, I think he's currently an agent with Octagon, um, and Gil, uh, Gilday, he kind of, uh, like they call him goose or we call him goose. I call him goose. Um, he's this big guy, deep voice, just big, big laugh, just big presence. Um, and I heard about Goose from a couple of guys on my team at UMBC who were from Delaware and, and they knew of him and they'd played for him with some of their like adult league games. And, and Goose was a, a really good player in his day. He played into his late thirties as a pitcher. And so I heard that Goose was the man. So if you want to get into indie ball, Goose knows everybody in indie ball. He knows everyone in major league baseball. He's got someone high up he can call on every major league team at any minute. So I called Goose and I said, Hey, you know, my name's Dan. Um, I heard you have this team. I know my friend Joe had talked to you about me a little bit. Um, and I was wondering if I could, uh, you know, if you might have a spot for me to come down with this, this Florida trip. So he agreed. And what the Gilday Raiders did every year for 20 plus years was they toured the major league spring training camps. So he would take this group of independent players or, uh, in, in my case, in my first trip, we went down there with Esteban Jan and a couple other guys who had some pretty significant uh, big league time who just, you know, fell out of the game and needed to get back in. So Esteban Jan was trying to make a comeback. He was in his late 30s, I think, at the time. And I'd remembered him. He was uh, satirized on The Simpsons. So it was weird seeing him in person. I, I didn't know he was going to be on the trip, but when we showed up, um, we were all met in the parking lot of this hotel in Florida. I see this guy walk up and he looked like Morpheus from the, uh, um, from the matrix because there's this huge guy with a shiny, really dark skinned head and this like knee length black calfskin jacket with like this blue lining that had to be in like a $20,000 jacket. And I'm like, all right, who is that guy? He's a somebody. Um, I got to figure out who that is. So, and yeah, it was Esteban Yan. Um, and obviously as a Baltimore guy, I remember him closing games for the Orioles, you know, throwing 97, 98 miles an hour back in the day. So we toured, um, all the Florida camps. So we played games. I remember at that time, my, my first inning came against a, a nationals, a ball squad. And obviously like, it's not always, you know, an a ball squad, but they kind of mix guys around in the, in the major league spring training camps. But the teams that we played were usually a ball caliber, sometimes higher. And sometimes, uh, Gilday's teams got, a lot of the big league guys when they're down on the minor league fields. So it varied. He's some crazy, crazy stories as a, as a heck of a, uh, of a thing that he ran. So anyway, so I was pitching down there trying to at least get ready for whatever it is I was getting ready for. I was still unsigned. 
but by time you know this was in in march and i was down there and i remember i was in the detroit um minor league field dugout so we were playing one of the detroit tigers teams and i wasn't going to pitch that day but i was sitting in the dugout and my phone rang and i had I had been aware that my phone might be ringing because my friend John Duffy had called me. He said, hey, you know, Josh talked to Hal, so just keep your eyes and ears open. You might get a call. And then uh, I didn't end up throwing for Rick Forney a second time. But he, and this is where the kind of the plot thickens, Hal, Hal Lanier, after being the St. Louis Cardinals manager, um, ended up being the Winnipeg Gold Eyes manager. So he was the Gold Eyes manager for, I think, 10, 10, 10 or more years. He was there for a long time. And then... One of his players was Rick Forney. Rick Forney was a, a starting pitcher for them, very successful player. When Hal left Winnipeg, Rick ended up taking the rain, uh, taking the reins over at at Winnipeg. So the relationship with Rick and Hal was still very strong. So as it turned out, um, you know, and I had mentioned that to uh, to Rick. So I went down to Florida. Rick had called Hal, Josh Patton, his his. Uh, hitting coach had talked to Hal about me. So now he'd had a couple different people. And then my coach, my friend, coach Duffy, he also called Hal directly. So three different calls went into Hal. And while I was in Florida sitting in that, in that dugout in the Detroit Tigers minor league field, I had my phone rang and I pulled out my stupid little flip phone and it was a Florida number, which I knew I was looking for a Florida number. And I answered it and that's who it was. It was Hal on here. And he said, Hey Dan, I've heard good things about you. And, uh, you know, Rick Forney called me and, you know, I, I really trust him. He's a, he's a, one of my players from back of the day. And, um, and he said, you've, you've got a good arm and you got some good stuff and that I should, uh, invite you into camp. So I'd like to extend you a spring training contract. And, um, I heard you in Florida right now and I'm actually in Florida, but I can't make it out there. Otherwise I'd love to come see you throw. He said, but you know, I, I've had enough good guys that I trust recommend you. So we're going to have you into camp. So, um, he faxed over my contract to our hotel there that night. And, you know, it was just, it was a dream. It was one of the most exciting days of my life. And from that point, the rest of that Florida trip, which I was there trying to get signed because there were indie scouts. They would kind of follow the Gilday Raiders a little bit. There were indie scouts down there. I saw a couple of other, my teammates get signed, get their first independent ball contracts. And, um, every year we'd usually lose one or two guys to major league teams too. Cause if you go down there and crush the ball or, dominate those guys you know obviously all the scouts and higher-ups are there they're watching their own players play against us um and there's a, a lot of there's a lot on the line for the, the other players too so we were a good team that trip I think we went five and two um because we had a lot of older experienced indie guys who'd you know been the major leagues or been in double a triple a and we would wax some of those younger teams and I just remember there was this poor Washington Nationals um minor league pitcher against us I mean, we tattooed the guy, he gave up like six or seven runs, and I think he got released after the game because we saw him walking off the complex with all of his stuff. Um, and who knows if that was the case or not, but it sure didn't bode well for that guy um, going down there and getting shelled by a bunch of bunch of nobodies. So anyway, um, as we fast forwarded to May, I was on my way down to normal, and I you know, drove my crappy little green Honda Civic all the way out there and this was my first experience just being out there on my own. And I was lucky. I was one of the guys who got a host family for spring training. Um, this sweet old couple named, uh, well, the, I guess the couple is not named, but individually, these two different humans, uh, Denny and Dory Crawford, they're amazing people. 
Um, I lived in their in their townhouse with them. Although out here they call it a zero, a zero lot line, so I don't know, it's a strange, strange uh, housing market out here. But so I lived in their like brand spanking new townhouse condo thing, whatever you'd call it, and it was it was great. They filled the refrigerator for me, and um, I had a really comfortable place to stay. And they were just just the nicest two people. Um, they've since moved away. I think they're in South Carolina now, but they ended up being my first host family and my last host family. I never actually had a second host family except for one just in spring training for like a week. Um, the following year in Lake County after that, I was always either in an apartment or in the hotel or sleeping in the clubhouse or do some, doing some kind of random thing. So, uh, Denny and Dory allowed me to, to be pretty grounded because a lot of guys were in the team hotel. Um, and, they were doing hotel things at night. So a lot of those guys, I guess, thinking they were pretty secure on the team, were going out drinking and going out chasing women and all this stuff during these incredibly important uh, two weeks. Whereas I had been I had been warned by my good friends who had done this before. I said, keep your head down, get rest. The only thing you need to do is pitch well. So don't get into trouble. Don't go out drinking. Don't do any of that stupid stuff that's going to jeopardize this this one chance that you're going to get because you may not ever get another chance if you screw it up and do something stupid on your own time. So I was petrified to leave my house, and I stayed home, and I ate blueberries, and I ate chicken, and I had just great food, and I just was within my own routine, which is incredibly important. I mean, any guy who's played a long time in any sport, guy or gal, will tell you how important their routine is to them. Having a routine... You know, you get up at the same time on game day, you go through the same routine in your pregame stretch, you eat similar foods, you just try to isolate variables so that you're doing well, um, so that when you're, sorry, so that when you're doing well, you know what you can account the positive um, effects from. And when you're not playing well, you don't, you can isolate performance variables rather than, oh, maybe I, you know, if you always... One night you're out drinking, the next day you just, you didn't eat, the next time out you had a bunch of horrible buffalo wings the night, the night before, or you didn't go through your pregame stretch, or you ran too much, or you ran too little, or you did too much strength training, or too little strength training. Or Once you start getting out of whack, it's hard to control why you're going well or why you're going wrong. It's hard to put your finger on one simple one single thing. So having a routine, being consistent... And just giving your body what it needs is just incredibly important for turning in consistently good performances. So my goal was I'm gonna shut up. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna open my mouth. I'm not gonna go out at night. I'm gonna eat healthy, I'm gonna get a lot of sleep, and I'm gonna make sure I can stretch and do all these things during the day before I report to the ballpark. So I was incredibly lucky to have such a great host family that helped me be stay grounded and keep my eye on the prize. Because as it turned out, and I, f- I figured this out the first day of practice when guys were kind of bragging about how good they were, um, I was the only pitcher they'd never seen throw, you know, because again, I networked my way into that contract with three phone calls. They'd never seen me throw. All the other guys, they'd either seen in person from, you know, because they were local or they just went out to see him or another scout had seen him and, and sent him their way or they had signed a lot of these guys out of a trial camp because this was a new team. And so they had to kind of scout a lot more than, you know, ordinary teams do. And in subsequent years, most of the time, guys won't have 
the managers won't have laid eyes on a lot of these players before the season and really just their baseball resume speaks for themselves. You know, like the manager for the Long Island Ducks, Kevin Bias, he's not going to fly around the country to, you know, have workouts with all these guys. Um, I know they just signed a, a bunch of big leaders recently. Like their their resumes speak for themselves, right? So he doesn't need to fly out and watch, you know, my teammate last year, Todd Coffey, had 10 years of big league time. He doesn't need to go fly out and watch Todd Coffey to see how he's doing. Like, if Todd wants a job, he'll get a job. He says, hey, I want to play for you guys. All right, oh, yeah, you're a, you're a guy. Sure, here's a contract. Like, that's how it works. But in the younger leagues, when they're talking about signing a college kid who has no pro experience, um, they want to get eyes on him more often. So at this point, they had signed a lot of the guys out of a trial camp. You know, they'd seen a lot of them in person. They had assembled their team a little more by hand than, you know, normal. So, um, like I said, I had they had never seen me before. So they didn't know what they were getting, and I had to prove myself. You know, I had to pitch my way on that team because I kind of figured as I kind of listened that they had made some promises to guys or just, like, told them various things that they then blew out of proportion. Like, oh, well, hey, they told me I'm going to be a starter. You know, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. So a lot of those guys end up getting cut. So with that spring training, it ended up being weird because it was really cold and it was really rainy the whole two and a half or three weeks that it went on. So we were supposed to have, you know, four or five exhibition games and a couple inner squads. But as it turned out, all of our exhibition games got rained out. So we didn't play a single exhibition in our ballpark or on the road where you know we went to Joliet once and I remember sitting in the clubhouse and it just poured the whole day so we just came back home and so with all this rain all this crappy weather um, you know we were practicing on Tri-Valley's field which is a local high school um, in addition to the corn crib some of the days because the corn crib I think was just getting its finishing touches put on it Um, that's their ballpark here in normal and uh just everything got washed out so what ended up being the uh the final grading was just a couple things number one we threw indoor bullpens you know a bunch of different times and um you know i I didn't think there was much they could infer from a bullpen you know i just was throwing 80 percent whatever but i was just really focused i conducted myself in a certain way i just went about my business you know like a professional and you know, I was the shortest guy there, so everyone was taller than me. It was a pretty intimidating experience. We had, I think, 18 or 19 pitchers in camp, and they had to cut down to, like, 10 or 11. And uh, I was the shortest right-hander that they'd never seen throw, that had just come off of surgery. So I wasn't high on anyone's priority list. But I threw my bullpens well. I focused. Um, I did what I could do. You know, I, I kind of carried myself well. And, you know, after about a week or so, you know, the pitching coach Brooks Carey just talked to me a little bit during the bullpen. He's like, Hey, you know, like I like, I like your breaking ball and um, I like the way you carry yourself and you know, you look good. Like you've thrown, you've thrown well on our pens. I know we haven't been out there and everyone's itching to get out there and compete, but he's like, you look good. So I said, thanks. And a couple of days later, um, I was out there uh, taking PFPs with the team and, and Hal like yelled out to me. He's like, Hey Dan, Rick Forney, he, he called and he asked me about you. Um, he asked uh, asked how you were doing. I told him told him you're doing great, and I was like, cool. I don't really know why you just told me that in front of everybody, but I'm excited that you did. So I guess whatever, just really in general, the way I was carrying myself. Again, I just tried to keep to myself, do my thing, go through my routine, just things that I tried to do to control variables, to try to not get hurt again, to try to optimize each day to try to be a little bit better every time I left the field 
those are the things that end up being important in me making that team. You know, me just carrying myself like a professional. So the the showdown came in a long inter squad. We ended up playing like five hours of inter squad because all of our games got rained out. So no one knew this, but that was the only time we'd end up pitching live. So all of us got two or three innings on the mound against our own teammates in inter, inter squad. And when I got my chance, I mean, I was I was nervous. I was jacked up. I was in the outfield and I was getting ready to go on and. I even got a lot, little bit of elbow pain right before I went on. And my elbow had not been hurting. I'd been fine. Uh, really, I just think it was probably just like stress and nervousness just like cropping up into my elbow. But I remember having this little bit of panic as I jogged out onto the mound because I'm like, oh, God, am I going to hurt myself now? Like, am I going to blow my elbow out? I'm like, well, I'm doing this anyway. So I got out there, and when I got on the mound, I just freaking reared back and just dealt and I didn't let a ball leave the infield. In my three innings, I gave up, I believe, zero hits, uh, and not a ball left the infield. So I think I had, like, three innings, like, four strikeouts, I think one walk, and uh, nothing left the infield. So that was a pretty good result for me, you know, just a, a bunch of miss hits, some strikeouts, and I was throwing pretty hard. So as I came off the mound, you know, one of the hitters I had faced, he goes, hey, man, like, where'd you, who'd you play with? Like, what organization? I was like, Nah, I'm a loser. <laughs> he goes, oh, well, you know, yeah, you're throwing pretty hard. What do you throw, like 94? I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, that'd be cool if I did, but I appreciate it. And uh, so that was my chance, you know, and, and, and I think the moral of the story was that you often just don't know what you're being judged judged on. And, you know, and it's, it's a big cliche where people say, hey, um, you know, your character is what you do when no one's looking you know it's it's not what you do when the coaches are watching but what you do when no one's looking but it's also the things that you do that you don't think people are looking for you know and so I was in front of the coaches all the time they didn't know that I was going home and going to bed at nine thirty and doing all this boring old person stuff but um they knew that when I was in front of them that I carried myself with a lot of professionalism and that wasn't something I was trying to do to impress any anybody. That was just me trying to control as many variables as I could, trying to just control kind of the out-of-control surroundings that I was placed in because I was stressed. You know, I was seeing myself not making this team, and um, and that's not that's not truly true. Like, I, I envisioned myself making that team. I knew, I knew who I was, and I knew I could make that team, but... I was stressed about not making it because that's the only thing I wanted in my entire life was to play professional baseball. And here I was, and it was going to come down to me making that team. And if I didn't, I probably wouldn't have got another chance. So there I was just being stressed. And when I'm stressed, I'm quiet. And when I'm quiet, I'm focused. So that was kind of how it went. And I think, you know, it was equal parts column A, me pitching really well when it counted in that inter-squad game, and equal parts column B, which was just me carrying myself um, a little more maturely than maybe some of the other guys. And a lot of those guys were out drinking the night before our inner squad. And after they got kind of lit up by some of our hitters, I just remember hearing them listening to, to them complain about it in the dugout. They're like, Oh man, like I didn't think we were going to play today. And yeah, I probably shouldn't have been out that late. And it's like, yeah, dude, well, maybe you should have valued what you're doing a little bit more. Um, and some of those guys who were bragging about how, you know, they were going to be a starter and they were told this and they were told that a bunch of them were sent, were sent packing. And I was pretty happy about that, to be honest with you. So, um, I made that team. I, uh, I ended up being the number two starter 
and I didn't have any expectations about what my role would be. I just didn't want to be the the twenty fifth guy or the twenty. I can't remember if it was twenty two or twenty four man rosters at that point, but um, you know, I was worried about being the twenty fifth best guy or the twenty third best guy, whereas in reality, I ended up being one of the one of the best pitchers that were there. Um, and that's not just to, to boast about myself, but it's just a, the fact that, you know, I worked really hard to, to be in that place. And it was odd that, you know, I've had a, a significantly better pro career than I did a college career. Because you think, you know, college baseball, even Division One baseball, which I played at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, is a lot lower level. But the pro game is different. You know, the way I pitch is, is better suited to, the, I think, the pro game. And I just honestly didn't know anything about pitching when I was in college. And... uh my stuff kind of played up as I got older and, uh, you know, I learned how to pitch. So I think for me, it was just being a late bloomer and being lucky to get chances when I got them. And, you know, and for me, it was always about capitalizing on those chances when I got them. So, you know, I, my heart always goes out to guys every year, you know, our tryouts for all the, the kids that we train here in normal, you know, I own Warbird Academy and we spend all winter rigorously prepping kids to, to make their high school teams and to get playing time for their college teams, you know, and um, we sent away my, my throwing partner for the last two years, Mitch Osnowitz. He went off to a Red Sox spring training this year, and he made a team, which is awesome. He's up uh, in high A, so if Mitch, you're listening to, if you're listening to this podcast, um, pitch well this week. So Mitch is out there with uh, the Salem Red Sox, and he's had the same struggles, just trying to get seen, trying to get, you know, trying to get by in spring training when you're the the guy they have nothing invested in amongst a big group of guys who are very talented, who are very heavily invested in. You know, he's been fighting that fight for the last couple of years um, as a, a pitcher who converted from being a position player in college. So, you know, like I said, one of the one of the points of this podcast is not only just to tell my own story, um, but there's so many guys out there who are grinding through collegiate and pro baseball to get pretty deep despite being the underdogs, despite being guys who people don't invest in, who they don't give them the chances, who they'll put them on the phantom DL when they get the chance, guys who get overlooked constantly, you know, and it's it's one of those things where the things like your makeup, and again, my makeup in spring training with normal was one of the things that helped me get that first contract to get my foot in the door, and after that, it was about performance, you know, could I pitch well, could I continue to, to earn my right to get more innings, so, you know, it was an arduous process, it was a long it was a long road back and that tryout was, it was, it was tough. You know, I was extremely stressed and I made the best of it. And like I said, when I, when I send all these kids that we train off to their high school tryouts, my heart goes out to them because it's just, it's hard. I, there's nothing more in this world that I hate the tryouts. Um, they were always the bane of my existence when I was a kid. I just felt like I, I wasn't going to get seen. I just felt nervous and everyone's watching you and judging you. And it's, it's a, it's a nightmare situation. Tryouts suck. Um, but I tell them, you know, like coaches see a lot more than you think they see, you know, they're watching how players carry themselves. They're watching who hustles. They're watching who hustles on and off the field. They're watching who helps clean up gear at the end, you know, and they're watching how you conduct yourself, you know, how focused you are when you take batting practice, how focused are you in the outfield? Like, are you actually running for balls in BP in the outfield or are you just lazily out there standing there? watching them go by you know outfielders can get better in bp or outfielders can get nothing out of bp just shagging the outfield um there's all those intangibles where coaches are trying to figure out can i trust this guy on my team is he going to be 
and a, a good investment for me? Is he going to continue to get better? Is he going to be? Is he going to gel well with the team dynamic? Is he going to be a good teammate? He's going to fit in here. All those things are important. Um, and even as you get higher up, and even as performance matters more, because um, I wrote an article about that recently on my website about how if you don't like it, play better. Um, you know, sports are cruel, and it, as you get higher up the ladder, it's more about your performance. But um, your makeup and your character, it always it always matters. And if there's ever a chance where you're on the cusp and it's between you and some other guy or between you and some other girl, the character's going to win out. They're going to say, okay, well, you know, she's a, she's a great volleyball player, but, um, you know, this other girl's equal to her. I mean, they're, they're, it's kind of a toss-up, but everyone loves her, and she's a great teammate. She works really hard. Um, you know, we're going to go with her. The other girl's kind of, you know, makes, makes excuses, and she complains when things aren't going great. You know, you just want to make sure if there's a tiebreaker that you win because of your makeup and your character. And, of course, that's easier said than done. It's just you can't just fake it, right? So it's about learning those positive character traits when you're young and building a work ethic and building resolve and, and building character so that when you're out there conducting yourself like a professional, it's because you, that's who you truly am or it's who you truly are. Not because it's what you're the wool you're trying to pull over a coach's eyes, you know? So that's all I've got for today. Um, thanks again for tuning into the, the dear baseball gods podcast. Um, feel free to check me out on the web danblewitt.com and obviously we're on itunes so leave us a review and subscribe and last note if you know someone who's got a great story um who didn't quite make it send me an email you know maybe we can get in touch with them maybe they can be on the show maybe they can share some of the things that help them endure the tough times uh throughout their career